Good morning. Uh, if you would please turn to James chapter 4. Excellent. It's always a new day. All right, James chapter 4. Uh, I want to start by telling you about a man named Thomas Lineker. Uh, here he is with the, the good-looking hat and everything, right? Thomas Lineker uh, was the king's physician to both Henry VII and VIII of England. Uh, he was also the founder of the Royal College of Physicians. Uh, he counted amongst his personal friends guys like Erasmus and Sir Thomas More. Can I tell you all that just to say that Mr. Lineker was a very important man in 16th century Europe. Okay, Lineker also lived at a time when Alexander VI was the Pope. And if you know anything about history, he was the Borgia Pope. Uh, you may have seen him on Netflix, right? Uh, he was the Pope that was probably the most corrupt of all the Popes. Um, he was just lived a life of total debauchery, had many people killed, uh, had lots of mistresses on the side, um, not much of a Pope. Okay, so later in his life, Lineker received a copy of the Gospels, and for the very first time in his life, he read the Bible for himself. Okay, keeping in mind this is before Bibles were readily available and he'd never had one before. And for the very first time, he read the Gospels. And after reading them, he was extremely troubled and upset because the Gospel he was reading didn't match the church that he knew. There's a very famous quote. He said this. He said, either these are not the Gospels or we are not Christians. I thought it was a very good quote. Okay, I tell you this story because one of the things that James hits on over and over in his letter uh, is what he calls not being double-minded. I don't know if you remember that phrase from earlier in our sermon series. Right? He says you can either have a mind and a heart for God or you can have a mind and a heart that longs for the world, but you can't have both. And when you try to do both, when you try to say, well, I'm a Christian, but I also really love the world, he says that's being double-minded and you just can't do it. He says you are either following Jesus or you're following some kind of an idol. Okay, we saw that idea last week. We'll see it again here in chapter 4. Now, typically, we wouldn't use the phrase double-minded, right? That's not something that is normally part of our vocabulary. We have another uh, much more popular word for it. We would say, don't be a hypocrite, right? Now, either way, I think one of the most damaging things to the church in the 16th century, in the 1st century, also in the 21st century, is when we're hypocrites, it's when we claim to follow Jesus, we claim Jesus is Lord, and we sing the songs, and we go through the motions, we say that our heart is for Jesus, and yet we live lives that look exactly like the world around us. You know, some of the strongest language that Jesus uses in his Gospels is for hypocritical religious people, and in the book of James, his strongest language comes here in chapter 4 as he talks about the problem of being a hypocrite in the church. Okay, notice chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Okay, and here's where he says we're hypocrites, right? We desire to follow God, but we also desire absolutely everything else. So he says our desires are literally at war within us. 
And sometimes God wins the fight and we choose, I'm going to follow God today, but then sometimes in other things, we choose to follow ourselves, but we are constantly experiencing this internal conflict. And then he goes on and he says, when we have that kind of conflict inside, when we can't really decide who's Lord, inevitably, that will lead us to external conflict. Okay, notice verse 2. He says, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. All right, here's my first question this morning. I've got three questions. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. My first question is, how do we handle our desires? And the short answer here, James says, is poorly. Okay, not very well. You notice how verse 1, James says, our desires are battling within us. Again, why are they battling? Well, because part of me really wants to follow Jesus as Lord. Okay, but there's another part of me, a part that talks really loudly, which wants to see David Chisholm as Lord. Okay, so there's this constant battle of who is really going to sit on the throne of my heart. Because I haven't completely surrendered my life to Jesus, I end up chasing a bunch of pleasures that look really good. I chase after my desires, hoping to find peace and happiness. But what happens when we try to chase peace and happiness the way the world defines it? Okay, we never find it, right? We end up with this life that's constantly trying the next thing that's going to make us happy. Okay, if I could just get this, then I'd be happy. If I could just satisfy this itch, then I'd be happy. If I could just get that next thing, if I could just do whatever it is, then I could find happiness. We have this conflict. Uh, This reminds me of what Paul says in Romans. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Romans chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 17. Notice what Paul says. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Okay, Paul, you've confused me, so now he can clarify in verse 19. He says, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. You ever felt that way? You know, I'm not sure that what Paul just said makes any sense, but I also think I totally get it, right? We have desires that battle within us. Uh, Several years ago, there was a book written called The Heat, Steelworkers, Lives, and Legends, written by a guy named Joe Gutierrez. And he he relates stories from his life about what it was like to work in a steel mill. And he tells a story about how when he was working in a steel mill, people used to fight over getting to work in the section of the steel plant where they had the steel strips rolling over pads and and a tall cooling tower. And he says the reason that you really wanted to work in that area is just because it was beautiful. Okay, the whole time you were working there, there were these little silver flakes that would just dance in the air all around you. In fact, visitors would come and visit the steel plant just to see that one room because it was so beautiful watching all of these silver flakes dancing all around you. The way he described it, he says the snow danced in August. He said it was enchanting. Of course, later people discovered uh, that this beautiful dust was asbestos. When Joe wrote his book, he couldn't catch his breath anymore. Uh, He could barely walk across a room without having to stop and get new breath. 
and he found out it was killing him. He said, it's ironic that all of the workers were fighting over something that turned out at the end of the day to be deadly. Okay, how tragic would it be to spend your whole life chasing after your desires, chasing after the things that you think will make you happy, battling for something, scratching and clawing, tearing other people down, only later to discover that it was death to you. Okay, how tragic would it be if you and I spend our lives chasing our desires and our pleasures rather than chasing the kingdom of God? All right, notice what James says this makes us. Verse 4, and this is truly supposed to be evocative and hit us, hit us hard. He says, verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. All right, here's my second question for the morning. And that is, how do we handle our relationship to the world? As we think about we are the church, but we live in the world. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. How do we handle the relationship that we have to the world? Okay, again, I think the short answer here James gives us is poorly. Okay, you notice James is not pulling any punches with this. He says for us to be hypocritical in this way is adulterous. Okay, the appropriate metaphor to describe how we go back and forth between Jesus is Lord and I'm Lord is the metaphor of adultery. It is like cheating on your spouse. Okay, this is intentionally evocative. He's trying to get our attention, show us how serious that is. He says you cannot have it both ways. You cannot follow the world and follow God. You have to choose. All right, I have a quote for you. This is from a book called The Holy Longing by a guy named Ronald Rawlheiser, and he says this. I think he says it very well. He says, we want to be a saint, but we also want to feel every sensation experienced by sinners. We want to be innocent and pure, but we also want to be experienced and taste all of life. We want to serve the poor and have a life of simplicity, but we also want all the comforts of the rich. We want to have the depth afforded by solitude, but we also do not want to miss anything. We want to pray, but we also want to watch television, read, talk to friends, and go out. It's a small wonder that life is often a trying enterprise and that we are often tired and pathologically overextended. I like that phrase. We are pathologically overextended. I think that's absolutely true. I think our biggest temptation in the church is that we really want to be friends with the world. All right, here, for instance, uh, if I said to you, that guy over there is really successful, right? If I described, I said to you, my neighbor is really successful, okay, what do you think of? Okay, well, you probably think, well, he's good at his job and he's made a lot of money. Okay, we think of success as having a good house, a good job, a nice car, If I said to you, my neighbor, this guy right over here, he's really successful, how many of you would think, wow, that guy must have really good character? Okay, he's super honest, he cares for the poor, he never gossips. Okay, would we think that? No, why? 
Because we define success by worldly standards instead of godly standards. All right, if you only hear me say one thing this morning, let it be this. Okay? If we continue to define success just like the world, then we will always look just like the world. Okay? I'm going to say that again because I thought that was pretty good. All right? If we continue to define success just like the world, then we will always look just like the world. You know, we are entertained by the same things that the world looks to for entertainment, right? And I'm not advocating a return to the days when the church condemned playing cards and dancing, right? Uh, If you know me at all, you know I'm no legalist. But I am saying that the world has a messed up understanding of what's entertaining, and we as the kingdom of God should look different. You know, we form relationships exactly as the world does. Okay, what I mean by this is that our divorce rates in the church are the same as in the world. Okay, our desire to be friends with people just like us is the same as it is in the world. Our desire to leverage relationships for what they can do for me is the same as it is in the world. Okay, there's a lot of ways we as the church are just like the world, and we could certainly talk about that for the rest of, of our lives. Okay, but if in the course of my walk with Jesus, I don't look different in some significant way than the people around me, okay, then am I really following Jesus? Am I really a disciple? Or am I just playing at the church thing and really all the while I'm still Lord over my own life? Does it really cost me anything to follow Jesus? Do I look any different than my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus because of my walk with Jesus? Is that fair? Thank you. All right. So what's our solution? How do we do this practically? How do we not be hypocritical? How do we not love the world? How do I really let Jesus be Lord of my life instead of myself? Notice what he says starting in verse 7. He says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. All right, so he says that the solution uh, to wanting to be friends with the world, the solution to really putting Jesus as Lord of my life, really has to do with humility. Okay, here's my last question this morning. That is, how do we handle our pride? How do we handle our pride? Ultimately, I think the way we answer this final question will determine how we do on questions one and two. Okay, if we can lay down our pride, then we can quit struggling so hard with our desires and with our relationship to the world. I think if we can learn humility, then much of the rest of our walk with Jesus will handle itself. I don't know if you remember, this was several months ago, we did a sermon series on the seven deadly sins. Um, I've slept since then, I know you have as well, right? Um, You remember the seven deadly sins sermon? Okay, one of the things that was enlightening to me as I was studying for that series um, is that all of the seven deadly sins are rooted in pride. Okay, when you really get down to it, all seven of the deadly sins are rooted in pride. Lust is really about pride, envy is about pride, sloth is about pride. 
I think it is very intentional that James says here, if you want to be lifted up, if you really want to walk with God, if you want to quit being in this adulterous relationship with the world, then the way you do that is humble yourself before God. Let Him lift you up. If I really want to follow God, I have to deal with my pride. Okay, so what does that look like? Notice James says, if you resist the devil, he will flee. Okay, God will come near. He will lift you up. Right, so what are the ways that we practically do this? How do we practically resist the devil so that we can walk with God? Okay, several questions. Again, if you're taking notes, you can write these down. But one of them is, uh, James says, do you repent? Okay, have we ever changed our joy to mourning? Have we ever actually sat before God and said, here's the stuff that is in my life that I need to lay down before you? Okay, do we continue to go before God and repent for the weaknesses that are still in us? Or do we just like to keep moving and pretend like everything's okay? Have we taken time to repent? Do we ever keep silent before God? Do we ever slow down long enough to actually spend time with God in silence? Okay, are we students of God's Word? And I'm not talking about just, oh, I did my daily Bible reading and I'm studying for content and I can list all the kings in order and stuff like that. I'm asking, are we really taking time to let God's word form our lives? Do we read it as a spiritual discipline? Also, do I have a ministry? Am I actively working in the kingdom of God? I think there's no better way to submit to God than by spending our time working in his kingdom. Okay, also, am I committed to a group of believers as a family? Okay, a lot of people will keep their church relationships shallow because it's easier than being really invested. Okay, but we're cheating ourselves when we do that because it's only by being committed to a family, by actually having brothers and sisters in the kingdom that we walk alongside, by forming those deep relationships that we really can resist the devil together. Okay, along with this is, is there anyone in my life that I can talk to about deep things? Again, I think one of the devil's best tricks to use against us is to keep us isolated. Right? If I'm alone, if I'm not talking to other people about things that matter, if I think I'm in this all by myself, then he's got me. Okay, God intentionally gave us each other. You are not isolated. You are not alone. God gave us each other. Again, it's about laying down your pride and letting God lift you up. Am I truly ready to make Jesus Lord of my life? All right, at this time in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. Uh, During the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. Uh, We would love this opportunity to pray with you or talk with you about anything that you're struggling with in your life. Um, If you'd just like to know more about what it means to become a Christian, or if if there's anything that we as the church can do to help you, that is what this song is for. Uh, Before we sing that song, I'd like to close this with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Let's stand and sing.